The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. The Lenten season is generally understood as an opportunity for us to reflect on our lives and especially to think about our relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another and what those things are that might be standing between us and the other person and us and God. But what I want to point to this morning is a different question, perhaps. It's the question, what does it mean to be a faithful disciple of Jesus? Just as Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted it was a time for him to begin to understand more fully what his ministry would be. And I think Lent offers us that same kind of wilderness experience, an opportunity to consider our life in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There are many examples of uh, people who have been uh, faithful disciples. Uh, I've, I've thought of many as I was preparing this sermon, but one stood out for me in particular. He is Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador. Uh, some of you have heard uh, he's in the news now, even though he's been dead for a number of years, because uh, the current pope is in the process of uh, working him through to elevate him to sainthood. Uh, if you go to Westminster Abbey, you will find in the gallery of uh, 20th century uh, martyrs a statue of him, along with Mother Elizabeth of Russia, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So he is internationally recognized as someone who gave his life in a very particular way for his people. Archbishop Romero's story is a very interesting one. He was a parish priest, uh, somewhat of an intellectual. He was uh, someone that uh, might not stand out to you necessarily, he was a quiet man. He didn't, I don't think he ever thought of becoming a bishop or an archbishop. 
But when he was uh, elevated to archbishop, it was seen by Rome and by the uh, government to be a very safe selection because he was not someone who seemed to be enamored of uh, liberation theology. He was not a Marxist. And in fact, he was often associated with a very conservative uh, Catholic organization you might recognize, Opus Dei. So they thought they found somebody who would be just right and wouldn't stir the waters too much. But what they didn't know about Archbishop Romero was that although he was not a Marxist, he did embrace those aspects of liberation theology that helped him to be a better disciple, that helped him follow Jesus more clearly, and especially emphasis on the needs of the poor. So they found someone, it turns out, who was not the kind of person they were really looking for. Archbishop Romero feared for his life through most of the time that he was an archbishop. He, uh, there's one story about him where he was sleeping in a kind of a lean-to at a convent that had a corrugated roof on top. And that night, there had been a very heavy rainstorm. And he was startled out of his sleep, thinking that people were attacking him with machine guns. It was the rain on top of the metal roof. He lived in fear of being killed. But somehow he overcame that fear. And very soon he started as a part of every Eucharist that he celebrated, taking time for people to come forward and talk about, to report on what had been going on in their villages and also to hear reports of what had happened with some of his priests. Many of them had been arrested, tortured, and in some cases, executed. So in spite of his fear, Archbishop Romero realized that what he had to do was to be faithful to his people, and he certainly was. But he had to be stopped because he was too much of a threat to the government. On March 24, 1980, he was assassinated. It was a gathering of the uh, Opus Dei priests, and they had spent a good part of the day reflecting on their priesthood, and then they gathered to celebrate the Eucharist. And while he was celebrating the Eucharist, he was assassinated. Well, as you can imagine, that had a tremendous effect on the people of El Salvador. And because of that, we remember him to this day. He was a man who cared for his people and was willing to die for them, even though he had great fear. He cared for his people and died for them, just as Jesus had. Well, the lesson that we have in today's gospel is not an easy one. And what is worse is that it's often distorted in interpretation. Just before today's portion of Scripture, Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them, uh, who do the people say that I am? And they say, one of the prophets. And then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, being Peter, blurts out the Messiah. And Jesus then begins to talk about, not Messiah, but about Son of Man. It's interesting to me that Jesus never refers to himself as Messiah. He always uses this term, Son of Man. The Son of Man comes from uh, a vision that Daniel had. You can find it in the seventh chapter of Daniel. And it's a vision of, uh, of a heavenly place where the Son of Man is with all of the angels. And then finally, the Son of Man will come to judge 
and to have dominion over all the peoples of the earth. And that is the image that he chose as a reflection of who he was. Now, I think there's a, there's a reason for that, and I think it's at the heart of the, of the tension between him and Peter. In the first century, the understanding of what the Messiah would be and who the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would do, was to overthrow the Roman government and to reestablish the kingdom of David. So, in other words, it was a human, it was a human adventure, not a, not a heavenly one. And you recognize in that uh, discussion between, if you could call it a discussion between Peter and Jesus, that Jesus says, Peter, your mind is on earthly things, not on heavenly things. Jesus' vision of what it was to be the Son of Man, he described to the people by saying that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected by the authorities of the temple, be killed, and then in three days to rise again. But apparently Peter never heard the part about three days and rise again. Is <laughs> all Peter heard was this was not going to be the kind of Messiah that he had in mind at all. Not at all. And here he was telling it to all the people. So Peter pulls him off to the side and rebukes him. And that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus recognized that what Peter was saying to him was the same thing that he was being tempted by in the wilderness. And that was to have earthly power, to have earthly dominion. And that is not what he was called to do. So I think what we see in that uh, conflict between Jesus and Peter is at its heart is an understanding of what he was called to be. What kind of a person was he to be there as the incarnate one? Not to be the Messiah to overthrow the Romans and establish the Davidic kingdom. Well, then Jesus turns to the crowd and he begins to address them about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of mine. And he says that there are two things. One must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That first part about denying self has often been, I think, greatly misunderstood. Uh, as someone put it, it is not doormat theology. We are not to become doormats. We're not to deny the essence of who we are. We were created in the image of God. So it does not have to do with that. But rather, I think what it really focuses on is realizing that we're not the center of the universe. Now, as an only child, that's not easy for me to say. <laughs> but I think that's what it's calling us to, is to recognize that it's not always about us, but rather it's about how we might be able to serve others. That, I think, is what it means to deny self, to recognize that we were created for a purpose other than just to make things wonderful for ourselves, but rather to reach out to others, especially others in need. And then he says, you must take up your cross and follow me. So often, the idea of bearing one's cross, I think, has been trivialized. You hear people talk about that relative that they can't get along with, but that's just my cross to bear. Or the boss that's impossible, my cross to bear. Or that 
illness that's so chronic and must just be endured. My cross to bear. That's not what Jesus was talking about at all. Jesus, I think, was talking about a very different kind of thing. But for the people who heard it, who heard Mark's gospel read to them, I think they took it literally. Because they were living at a time when there was tremendous oppression from Rome. And many people were being crucified. In, uh, Rome was, was really brilliant in terms of using crucifixion, not unlike the way ISIS uses crucifixion and beheading today. If you uh, stood up to Rome, you might find yourself on a cross. In, this, in six of the Common Era, the year six of the Common Era, in northern Galilee, there had been an insurrection. And it is said that there were 2,000 uh, insurgents who were crucified on crosses. Can you imagine what that must have been? So Rome had a way of saying, don't cross us or we will put you on a cross. So for, the read, for those who heard this gospel uh, in Mark's community, I think they would have understood it that way. Even today, it's hard to believe, but there are people who are being crucified. Uh, the Syriac Christians in Syria, one of the oldest Christian communities of all, are being destroyed by ISIS. Uh, not uh, long ago, a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, I think there were four villages completely wiped out by ISIS. All of those Christians taken captive. And then, of course, we can't forget those Coptic Christians in Libya who were beheaded. And it is said that as they faced their execution, the name of Jesus was on their lips. They understood what it is to bear one's cross. To bear the cross for Christ and for the gospel. But I think we also have to look at what it means for us today to bear a cross here in the United States, where we're not facing that kind of, of uh, crucifixion or threat. It might be that love is the cross that Jesus is asking us to bear. And I think it's, uh, it's easy for us to think that that's just sort of a soft sort of thing. As I was sitting here this morning during the Liturgy of the Word, I was looking up at, at this uh, transept, and again I saw that pink window that's there, and there's another one over there. Uh, some of you know that in the 70s, uh, this church extended love to some people who needed love a lot. They were young folks who needed a place to go. And the place, as it became called, was a refuge for young people. Now, this was the kind of love that's hard for a parish to give. This was a new church, and there were young folks coming who had problems with drugs and alcohol. They were, I've heard stories of them dancing on the altar. I've heard all kinds of stories. And it, in many ways, caused some division in this church and in the community as well. But I think that that was an expression of love as a cross. It was not easy for this congregation to do that. And then, apparently, one of the youth uh, knocked out one of those windows. And it was decided that there would be a pink window put there to always remind us of the love that was extended to those young people. But it should also remind us of the pain 
associated with that love. That love was not extended easily. It was hard. And you know, there are people yet today in this congregation that struggle with what happened during that period. But I believe that we can be confident that as hard as it was, and as much as we might still have feelings about that having been one of those really bad times, I think that was the cross of love. The theologian Joseph Small says that a theology of the cross declares that the church is not Christendom. Faith is not certain. Hope is not optimism. And love is not painless. I believe that Oscar Romero uh, was able to truly live his life as a disciple of Christ. That was the only thing he really wanted to do all of his life. We may not have to give our life, but we do know what we're called to. We're called to set aside self for others. And we're called to bear the cross of love, real, deep, enduring love. Amen.